The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. You know, uh, during the recent newcomers Zoom uh, that we had just this last weekend, uh, at the very tail end of it, one of the participants uh, asked the staff for our picks of our top three to five movies, favorite movies. And so as a big movie buff, uh, I, I love that question. And so I replied uh, kind of first, and I said, uh, <laughs> I said, 400 Blows by uh, Francois Truffaut. <laughs> and I was about to name some other titles by people like Hitchcock and Fellini and Kurosawa. But I looked at the blank stares <laughs> of the participants of the Zoom call, and I suddenly had this very self-aware moment, and I asked someone else on staff if they would share their picks instead. And Pastor Peter stepped in and sort of saved the moment, <laughs> and he gave his top movies. And I think he actually made a much better connection with the newcomers, uh, because at least everyone recognized the movies that he named. And these are the moments that I've come to become very familiar with in my life that make me feel very abnormal. Um, <clears throat> and maybe that's why a couple of nights ago, I did something that I would normally never do, uh, to try to feel more normal. And I, all by myself that evening, uh, decided to watch the 2017 uh, live-action version of the movie uh, Beauty and the Beast. And, you know, I, I haven't watched all of them, but the ones I've seen, I haven't been the biggest fan of these Disney uh, live-action remakes. Uh, because at least for me, they don't really seem to capture the magic of the original animated films that I enjoyed so much when my kids were really little. Um, but watching that film the other day, I was struck by the strong gospel themes uh, that are throughout that movie. Uh, the story is of a prince who abuses his subjects totally for his own benefit. And there is no love whatsoever in his heart for anyone but himself. And so one day an old woman shows up at his castle seeking shelter in exchange for a single rose that she says she will give to him. But he ends up uh, turning her away. And the woman warns him, him that appearances can be deceiving and that beauty is found within. But he remains unmoved by her situation and decides to send her away. And only then, after her reject, his rejection, does she reveal herself to be this beautiful enchantress. And in that revelation, she transforms the prince into a hideous beast. But it's not the prince alone who ends up affected by this curse, the spell. The entire king's court in that castle is transformed into inanimate objects like clocks and teacups and candelabra. You know, fairy tales tell us 
about a fantasy world in order to open our eyes to understanding our own world. And the story that Beauty and the Beast tells us is that our world is not as it should be. Something has gone horribly wrong with it. In other words, we're all living under a curse that must be broken. And not only that, but we ourselves are not living in the fullness of who we were meant to be. We have all somehow become less than, dehumanized, so that we are no longer living in the fullness and the beauty for which we were created. Interestingly, the only way to break the spell is love. In order to be saved, the prince must learn to love and to be loved by someone before the last petal on that rose that he rejected falls. The answer to this curse comes in the form of a young woman named Belle, uh, which in French just means beautiful, whose father is taken prisoner by the beast when he uh, steals a rose from the beast's castle. And unable to bear the thought of his, her father being imprisoned for the rest of his life at the beast's castle, Belle exchanges her life for his. In the best-known original versions of the French story, uh, particularly the one by Beaumont, uh, this is what the beast says to the father. I will forgive you on condition that one of your daughters comes willingly and suffers for you. And when Belle is informed of her father's situation, she responds with these words, I will deliver myself up to all the beast's fury, and I am glad to think that my death will save my father's life and be proud of my tender love for him. And as I'm sure almost all of you are aware of how the story unfolds, over time, Belle learns to see beyond the beast's hideous appearance and love him despite who he is. And through her love for him, the curse is broken and the beast is restored as a handsome prince, transformed not only in his outer appearance, but also on the inside as well, because now the prince has learned how to genuinely love others. And as we've been seeing through this Bible Project series, the Bible also tells us that the story of humanity is the story of a lost race living under a curse. God created humans to be in his image, to live in his loving presence, and to rule with him over his creation. But instead, we've rejected his plan for us and his leadership over us, choosing instead our wisdom over his wisdom. The original condition in the garden was of being naked and unashamed, we're told. But as soon as sin and rebellion entered our world, tragically that nakedness was replaced with hiding and covering and being unashamed with shame and fear. 
The state of hiding, shame, and fear is the world that all of us are now born into. But rather than discarding or abandoning us, God went on mission to restore the broken relationship with him. Out of all of the nations, God chose Israel to bring salvation to the world. But rather than acting as God's chosen people, as a light to the world, Israel turned its back on God and proved to be just as lost as all the other nations. And so in his judgment, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple burned to the ground. And God sent his people into exile in Assyria first and then Babylon. And after many years of exile, they were finally able to return home. But even after that homecoming, the hearts of the people hadn't actually truly returned back to their God. The glory of God, as we've seen, never reappeared in the rebuilt temple. What an utterly hopeless situation. A world that was lost and the people God chose to bring about that salvation proving to be just as lost as the rest of the world. And in the midst of all of that hopelessness and despair, the Old Testament closes with a promise that hope hasn't been completely extinguished. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 and 6. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. From almost the beginning of history in the world, uh, the world has been living under a curse. Everything engulfed in darkness. But the words of Isaiah say that all hope has not been lost. God promises that a light is about to break into the darkness and it will come in the form of a child born into this world who will bring about the salvation that has been waited for generation after generation. In almost the very last words of the Old Testament, we find this promise of God in the last inspired prophet, Malachi, chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. What beautiful imagery. Now it is night, but the promise of God is that morning is coming. And when that morning sun rises, those who have kept their hope in God will bask in the warmth of its glow and experience the healing that it brings to the land. And the joy of that moment will be like the joy of a calf that has been kept pent up all night in its stall. But once let out into the freedom of the open field, it kicks and dances and frolics with joy. He says that is going to be the experience of people who see that day when that light dawns of his salvation. And so after 400 more years of waiting, God finally fulfilled his promise. 
Zechariah prophesies over his newborn son, who will later be known as John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, verse 76 to 79. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us, from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. You see, if you look at Zechariah's song, it is filled with references of the promises made by prophets like Isaiah and Malachi that we just looked at. The promised rising sun of God's healing has finally come. Light is finally breaking into the darkness of the world. And it's all being fulfilled in the birth of this one child, Jesus. As the great Christmas hymn says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary soul rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. This Advent season is filled with these themes of hope and peace and love and joy that we've been preaching through this last month because they are found everywhere in these stories that surround the birth of Jesus. And in light of all the discouraging events that have marked Israel's long history, you can understand why there was so much excitement and celebration about the birth of Jesus because real hope had finally come to the people of God through the birth of this child. Luke chapter 2, verse 25 through 38 captures this beautiful story about the events that surrounded his birth. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Then there, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them all at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. What a scene it must have been when Simon and Anna descended on Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus. 
filled with tears of joy after decades of prayer for the answer of this promise. And they realized after hundreds of years that they were going to see the Messiah born into this world. This is the message of Christmas, is that all of the hopes of humanity lie in the single child born into our world named Jesus. It's interesting that in Beauty and the Beast, both the problem and the solution of the story centers around love. The prince received the curse because he didn't know how to love. He became a beast to reflect in his outer appearance how his lovelessness had dehumanized him. And therefore, the only way for the beast's curse to be broken was to both give and receive love with someone else. You know, at the heart of the brokenness of our world is a failure of love. And therefore, love is the solution to humanity's problem. The Bible describes the gospel as a story of love. We were invited into a loving relationship with God, but we rejected his love. But it is ultimately God's relentless pursuing love for us that will restore our broken relationship with him. John 3.16 puts it like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Giving us his only son Jesus to stand in our place and to die for our sins was God's ultimate act of love for the world. And that is the Christmas message. But even especially in a year like this, I think many of us have to wonder, if God loves us in this way, then why do so many things go wrong in our lives and in our world? Why do so many prayers seem to go unanswered? Why doesn't he come through for us more often? And if God loves us, why are we going through this pandemic right now? It just seems unrelenting. You know, there's no simple answers to these problems of pain and evil in our world. But through Jesus, we see God's clearest statement of his love for us. Because he entered into our pain, identifying and with it and experiencing everything that we suffer in this life. I shared this quote last Christmas, but it fits so well with this year's message that I want to share it again. And it comes from Paul Tripp from his uh, Advent devotional called Come, Let Us Adore Him. And he writes, The beautiful world that God had created was now broken and groaning. The direct result of the rebellion of the ones God had made in his own image. The evidence of its brokenness was everywhere. From the inner recesses of the hearts of people to violence and corruption of government to the existence of plagues and diseases. Sure, there was beauty still to be seen, but the whole world groaned under the weight of its brokenness. It would have been just for God to stay his distance, to let the world quake and groan. But in one of the gorgeous mysteries of God's sovereign grace, he looked on his broken, rebellious world with eyes of mercy. 
God would take on human flesh and invade his sin-broken world with his wisdom, power, glory, and grace. But he wouldn't descend to a palace. Instead, the Lord Almighty, the creator, the sovereign king over all things would humble himself and take on the form of servant. He would live on our behalf the life we could never live, have never lived. He would willingly die the death that you and I deserve to die. And he would rise from his tomb as the conqueror of sin and death. He would suffer every single day of his life so that he could, with his life, give grace to rebels, extend love to those who would deny his existence, impart wisdom to those who think they know better, and extend forgiveness to everyone who seeks him. That is the Christmas story. God's love for us doesn't mean that we always get what we want or that we will never have to go through hardships in this life. Not every prayer gets answered like we want it. You know, I think many of us are saddened this Christmas that there are no family gatherings, no shopping in crowded malls with Christmas music playing in the background, no trips into the city for Christmas markets and other holiday events. And no one is sadder than me. If you've ever heard me talk about Christmas, you know how much this holiday means to me. I, I affectionately describe my mother as Mrs. Claus because she made Christmas the highlight of every year for our family. Uh, I kid you not, one year she put a dozen trees up in her house for Christmas, okay? Our house looked like a forest because there were so many Christmas trees up there. It was insane. But, you know, this is what I was thinking about this year's Christmas. Having so many of the things that we traditionally associate with Christmas taken from us this year. I think it's this amazing opportunity to us to focus on the true meaning of this holiday. Because the Christmas we're experiencing this year is actually a lot like the very first Christmas when Jesus came into our world. You know, Jesus wasn't born into a palace, but into a place where animals were kept. And right after his birth, his parents had to flee to Egypt because King Herod wanted to kill him. And his life only got more difficult with each passing year. And when we see the brokenness of our world, the Christmas story invites us to remember that God entered into our pain and experienced the same suffering that we experience. And he did it all out of love for us. And I think that is something that we are all invited to meditate on this Christmas, to sort of put aside all the presents and the gatherings and music and all of that and understand that, that the heart of it all is this love of God for us by giving us his only son. You know, the Christmas message is so much more than God sending his son to die for our sins so that we can know where we go when we die. It's about the transforming power of God's love restoring the image of God in us so that we can love as he loves. 
Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 to 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He says it so casually, so nonchalantly that it's easy to miss his point here. But Paul is basically saying that before any of us experience this love of God, the human condition was basically summed up by saying we are all just living for ourselves. Every one of us. That is the summary of our lives, living for ourselves before we encountered the love of God. It is the default posture of the human heart and what leads to all of the brokenness and suffering that we experience in our world. Uh, the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said in a 2017 TED Talk, perhaps the most simple way into a culture and into an age is to ask, what do people worship? People have worshipped so many different things, the sun, the stars, the storm. Some people worship many gods, some one, some none. In the 19th and 20th centuries, people worshiped the nation, the Aryan race, the communist state. What do we worship? I think future anthropologists will take a look at the books we read on self-help, self-realization, self-esteem. They'll look at the way we talk about morality as being true to oneself, the way we talk about politics as a matter of individual rights, and they'll look at this wonderful new religious ritual we've created called the selfie. And I think they'll conclude that we worship in our time, what we worship in our time is the self, the me, the I. As Sachs points out, the religion of our day is the worship of the self. It is the air we breathe so much so that we don't even realize how much this dominates our thinking. Everything revolves around our needs, our desires, our hopes, and dreams. And it is, I would argue, this very self-centeredness that fuels all of our sadness and frustrations, all of our anger and resentment that we experience in life. You know, at the beginning of the message, I shared that awkward moment of feeling abnormal uh, when asked to share my favorite movies. And the truth is, that has been a very common experience for me throughout my entire life, to feel like a misfit, to feel misunderstood, like most people just don't really understand me. And as a result of that, there is this really deadly temptation to think that if I could only surround myself with people who are just like me, who get me, my life would be so much better, so much easier. This is the kind of thinking that all of us can get sucked into, right? If only I married someone who was more like me, things would be so much easier in my marriage. If only I could find a church filled with my kind of people, church would be such a better experience than what I've gone through in my life. I call this temptation deadly because when we surround ourselves with people who are just like us, we only become more extreme versions of ourselves, And that is never a good thing. 
I mean, just look at what is happening in the world of politics in America today. Each side only listening to people who think just like them. And look at what it's doing to our nation, ripping us apart. What I have come to realize is this, that it is in the very struggle to be in community with people who are so different than me that I am forced to deal not just with them, but with myself and with my God. And it is in that struggle that I grow and learn what love is. Because God's love for us, because of his love for us, he broke through all of the walls of hostility that separated us from him and helped us in our greatest need. And in the same way, God calls us to show that same love to others. And so let me close with these words in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. If we truly have received the message of Christmas and understood the love of God for us, what the Bible tells us is that we cannot help but be representatives of that love to others who are in need around us. As I shared at the beginning, I was so touched by Dr. Young's testimony because I think it represents so well the heart of a disciple of what we are called to do, to love those who are in such need of that love, who are desperate for that love. Not because there's anything noble or good in us, but because we have known that love that God has given in our own hearts. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the reality of that love for us. We confess that so often we are mired in these pits of despair or anger or self-pity or resentment. And it all flows because of our worship of self. But take our eyes off of ourselves and help us to look to Bethlehem 2,000 years ago when into this world came a child, the Son of God, born into our world to know our suffering, to know our pain, that we might know a God who loves us despite our hostility toward you, and may the joy of that good news fill our hearts this Christmas, especially a Christmas like this, when we are separated from family and other loved ones, when so many of the things that normally bring us joy on a holiday like this are stripped away. May we have Christ and Christ alone in our heart. And in that, may we find the greatest answer to the deepest longings of our hearts. So we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, we want to come to the table 
and to experience in a tangible way the love of God. I don't know, do we have elements for the people who are here, actually? If we could actually uh, take communion together, I think that would be, that'd be great. At home, we hope that you have prepared the elements as well to be able to take communion uh, with us at this time. So we'll just give you a moment to get the elements ready if you need to. On the day that Jesus was betrayed and the day before he would go to the cross, he gathered his disciples in an upper room and radically transformed the meaning of a Passover meal to say that he was the fulfillment of the promise of that Passover, bringing freedom and liberation to the prisoners and setting the captives free. And so as we come to this table, we come to it with that confession in each of our hearts to say that all of the hopes, all of the longings, all of the dreams that I have had for my life have been fulfilled and answered in the person of Jesus Christ. There is so much brokenness in our world. There's so many things that hurt us. And yet we have a God who has entered into that pain and walks with us through it. And in that is great rejoicing that the love of God will never leave us, will never forsake us. And so as we hold on to that truth, let me invite you to take this bread and take of the cup at this time that represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And then we'll just close in a final song in a moment.